Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Uh, those of you who listen to this podcast know that we spend a lot of time talking about public land. We spend a lot of time talking about conservation. We spend a lot of time talking about history. Well, today I've got two people who probably are as expert as we're going to find on those topics. So I'm going to sit back and take notes because I, they're, they're really setting right us now. up for failure. Uh, Jeez. No, no, no. You guys, this is going to be a fun discussion and it's going to be a little bit of politics from a history standpoint and just a very sanitized, you know, realistic of this is how it lays out. Um, not partisan one way or the other, just a discussion with a lot of historical context. So you can understand where hunting, conservation, public lands, uh, has traveled and where it's at today. Um, so that's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, but before we do that, I want to thank Leupold for being the sponsor of this podcast. Uh, they're the title sponsor of anything I do. Uh, I wonder if they're interested in sponsoring my wife's fishing boat, Leupold's walleye fishing by Kim Newberg. <laughs> there we go. I'm, I'm, I got more inventory for him. <clears throat> but anyhow, Leupold loves the self-guided public land message and they do everything they can to be a part of it. So I thank them. Orion Coolers, uh, you hear me talk about it. Uh, we just did a bunch of bear hunts, um, clips about them. Um, gosh, we use them for anything and everything. We use them for luggage. We use them for sitting on cutting boards, but mostly we use them to keep everything frozen and cold and uh, keep it from spoiling. So orioncoolers.com, go there, use promo code Randy, and you're going to get a free tumbler with the purchase of your, your wonderful Orion cooler. Uh, Onyx Maps, um, I don't know how, how I hunted without Onyx Maps before that. Uh, but onyxmaps.com, they are just, uh, I don't go anywhere hunting without that because if you're going to hunt public land, you need to know where you are. And with the Onyx Maps, they have their hunt app product and any hunt app product, not the chip, but the hunt app that's for your smartphone, use the promo code Randy and you're going to get 20% off everything you buy. So as you can tell, we're making this easy. The last two promo codes have been Randy, R-A-N-D-Y. And then gohunt.com, all of you ask, how do you do all this research? How do you draw all these tags? Oh, and since the last podcast, I found out I drew a really cool Arizona tag, Arizona elk, so don't be mad at me. But <clears throat> if you're using the Go Hunt Insider, you would know how to draw that tag. Um, so gohunt.com forward slash insider, the best draw odds. Uh, just uh, so many pieces of information brought to one location. And there, use promo code Randy and you're going to get a $50 Sportsman's Warehouse gift certificate. So, or gift card. Gohunt.com forward slash insider, promo code Randy, R-A-N-D-Y. And with that, now I'm going to tell you who we have as guests. Um, maybe you've been under a rock in the last six months and you have not seen the campaign, the effort called Keep It Public. Uh, if you run the circles I run, you see Keep It Public everywhere. And we have the crew here. We're in Missoula, Montana for the backcountry hunters and anglers. And we have the president of Keep It Public, 
Greg Blaskovich. Greg, did I say that right? Yeah, Greg Blaskovich. You nailed it. Oh, man. How about that, huh? And then one of their board members, private citizen, PhD, Western and environmental historian, man of many languages, world traveler. Uh, heck, of a, heck of a hunter. Yeah, all the above and commutes from Missoula, Montana to Spokane, Washington on a regular basis. Am, am I getting all that right? Because your wife is going to She's PT in school. school there. I'm in Missoula. I, yep. Yeah. And Randall decided he wanted to stay in Montana. I mean, that's like a commitment. That's a serious investment in what you want. Everybody to do. wants to live in Montana. It's hard to make a living Tell in Montana. Me about it. So when the, the right job, uh, opens itself up to you, you have to take it. So, yeah. <laughs> so here I am, I'm this knucklehead who I had to, I barely got out of business school and I'm sitting here with two PhDs, one in, with a PhD in political communications, one with a PhD in Western and environmental history. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing sitting with you guys? <laughs> it's not all it's cracked up to be. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's quite a process going through that five years of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Is that, a, that what it is? Five years for a PhD? I think that's the, if you're lucky. In, in history and in the humanities, the national average is like eight to nine years to finish. I finished, yeah. Holy cow. You guys are energetic then. See, I, I was so fed up with college, I didn't even go to graduation. I told my wife, you know what, for the 30 bucks that cap and gown would cost me, it was my girlfriend at the time. Yeah, I better think about that. No, we, we, oh man, I got my years mixed up. We had just got married. <laughs> I might be unmarried. I said, for 30 bucks, you know how much fishing we could do for 30 bucks in 1989? So I didn't even go. I don't even know. But I graduated from Harvard on the Truckee, as we called it there in Reno. Harvard on the Truckee. Yeah. Go Wolfpack, man. <laughs> got a couple family members from UNR. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. My See, dad and my sister. No way. Yeah. Oh, cool. So anyhow, at that time in 1989, that was an awful lot of fishing lures up at Pyramid Lake or some coyote calls for going out coyote hunt or a tank of gas to get out to Elko and go deer hunt. Yeah. So I, there, there was no way. I yeah, get your priorities. I wasn't spending $30 on something that frivolous. So anyhow, see, guys, I apologize. It's going to be nothing but a series of disconnected tangents here, but we're going to get right to it. If, if the audience sees hashtag keep it public, Greg, that, you're in charge of that operation. T- tell me how, why, where did you come up with an idea of this branded campaign, this intangible, I mean, it's not like you own the public land, so you're trying to sell a tangible item. How does, how does something like that come about? I mean, you and I were talking about this earlier, but I grew up in Santa Barbara. I've yeah. always recreated on public lands. Los yeah. Padres are right there. Whether it was uh, arguments over getting access to the beach to go surfing or whether it was mountain biking in the National Forest, uh, spear fishing, all of this stuff. I've always been a recreationalist. I started hunting it and, uh, and, and really non-spear, like a regular fishing, I guess it would be, uh, spin and fly in college. And um, yeah, and... and you know, my director of operations, uh, Pat Kern, and I, we, we always would stumble around the woods in college uh, attempting to hunt, as I'll, as I'll really? generously call oh, it. Oh, so you didn't grow up hunting? <clears throat> I didn't grow up hunting. Okay. No, but I always knew I wanted to. I was very much, um, I, I don't know, it was like innate. I always knew it was something I wanted to do. The types of books I read as a kid were all early 1800s uh, mountain man trapper type yeah. stuff. Ross, Osborne um, Russell. And, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've always been a passionate public lands user, and I think I've... 
uh, I think I've been aware of um, just the types of uh, management agencies that are out there, kind of Los Padres National Forest, and then Yosemite was a driving distance as a national park, and then, um, you know, we'd go out to Reno fairly frequently, mm. and, uh, you know, there's a ton of BLM land in Nevada, right. so, I, so I started to put together um, really a concept of just how unique our American public land system is, and I guess uh, transitioning that into the advocacy that we're now taking part of. Um, so I studied politics uh, for my PhD, political communication, basically the affective biases between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Say that again. The affective bias between Democrats and Republicans, right? Okay. And so there's this, (laughs) bear with me, Uh, but there was, uh, believe it or not, in political science and, and yeah, I've said this argument before, so I hope people... Right. Uh, no, well, I well, want to hear it. Yeah, so uh, in political science, there was there's legitimately debate over whether or not the American public is polarized. Some people say yes, some people say no. And um, the way that they're measuring polarization is where people fall on an ideological scale. What are your... You know, if you ask them a whole bunch of questions about various policies and then you aggregate that, where do, where do they fall on a left-right spectrum? Right. Um, and if you ask those questions devoid of party labels, it can be difficult sometimes and, and it actually looks like a normal distribution, you know, huh. where, where most people are centrist. Right. Um, you know, as soon as you introduce party labels, it shoots out to the side. But, but the lab that I worked in, what we um, were focused on was saying, you know, it really feels polarized out there. I think, you know, we would all say, man, you know, there's clearly something going on with political animosity. And we decided that perhaps a better way to measure polarization or what we feel out there is just how are Democrats and, Re- and Republicans feeling toward each other? Like, what's the animus like? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's kind of questionnaire or whether it's behavioral. You know, if we have them play uh, economic games or we do implicit association tests or all these boring things where they're actually behaving towards the other. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we've seen a dramatic spike in, uh, in people being essentially prejudiced against uh, political opponents. You know, the, the preferential treatment towards uh, co-partisans and biased against party opponents. And so I had this, wow. I, I was steeped in this, this background, right? Of it, It's kind of jading to focus on that for so long. And to, <laughs> and to, to focus on just, yeah, huh? yeah, like people just really hate each other because of the D and the R. And, um, and so, yeah, it turns out Democrats and Republicans don't like each other. You know, who knew? Yeah. Really groundbreaking stuff right. over there. Yeah, that's but, news, um, huh? Yeah. But when I think about public lands, um, I think we're seeing a lot of good rhetoric from a variety of organizations. Um, you know, if we look at recreation, we see, you know, I'm a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I think they do a fantastic job of saying, you know, clearly they're the, they're the sportsman's voice, but at the same time they're saying, you know, there's a lot of natural alliances there with hikers and bikers mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. The problem is, you know, I've got, or, or you can even look at TRCP and their sportsman's pledge and they had a, a beautiful picture on their website and there was a guy wearing a blaze orange vest. Right. And I remember I was, uh, there was someone in my lab and, and they wanted to know more about public lands. And I was, uh, at the end of the conversation, I basically said like, oh, here's some, here's some sites you should check out. Uh, here's a sportsman's pledge. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like this guy's wearing an orange vest. He's a hunter. Yeah. Like, ah, you know, I got to look into this again. And, uh, and Be- because of their first impression that, my guess, Hunters? I mean, maybe because I'm steeped in it, but I'm, I'm kind of under the impression that a lot of a lot of stuff is just proxy for politics, or these cultural divisions. Okay. Oh, he must be a conservative Republican redneck, right. and like, and I'm a liberal coastal Democrat, and I'm just like, clearly we can't align. 
Yeah. It's this assumption that it just can't be possible to agree. And so what Keep It Public is, if I can jump into that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're a, we're a nonprofit focused on building and showcasing uh, a coalition of support for America's public lands. And I, I put that on two channels. One is uh, building support across the recreational industry, right? The, exactly what I said. Hikers and bikers and skiers, and I guess we'll put it the non-consumptive users. Mm-hmm. I kind of hate that term, but, it's, I do uh, too, but, it, but, but it works. Yeah. And, um, and hunters and anglers. And of course, the funny thing is I think we, we all do all of that. You know, I'm on both sides of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's definitely advantageous to build a wider coalition. Uh, but the second that I think isn't, isn't talked about as much, but it really important is I, I think when we focus so much on recreation, although it's important and it's how I identify, I'm primarily a recreationalist on these lands, there's kind of the assumption or it makes us vulnerable to being... Uh, put in a dichotomous system where it's like, you guys just want to play on these lands and we'll pit that against, and it can be earning a living on these lands or, you know, uh, or perhaps not, not uh, mobilizing these lands in the, in the most sound economic way. Right. And, um, and that's not the case at all. Right. And and we're really out there to show, Hey, we, when we say coalition, we mean coalition, you know, it's, you said it, I've said it, we've all heard it. It's much cheaper to graze cattle on federal public land than it is private or state land. Right. It just is. And, um, and so I really think it's important to incorporate as many perspectives as we can to build the biggest coalition possible. Now that's all fine and well and, and fairly grandiose, but I'm wondering, you know, I'm, I'm sitting over here studying how much people hate each other and how they're not even willing to, you know, <laughs> sign a pledge for public lands because some dude's wearing a blaze orange vest. I'm thinking, well, God, how in the hell do I, how in the hell do I attack this problem? And so, um, the, the reason or the, how we, how we handled that problem was we have an aggressively narrow policy stance or legislative stance, whatever your preferred term is. And that is we oppose the transfer, sale, or degradation of the federal management of public lands, period. That's it. Do no, I, no. Yeah, yeah. Do I have perspectives on, I don't know, we'll say extraction that probably, you know, Randall and I here probably disagree on the, you know, ideal amount of extraction that each of us would like to see. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, that doesn't enter our keep it public's professional stance. Um, and I think it's really important because, you know, the polling has showed that there's generally consensus among the American public on this particular issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually amongst the rank and file, that's, that's a bipartisan consensus. Um, where it goes off the rails is, is when people start adding in basically their entire personal platform uh, or organizational platform. And so by taking this really isolated approach, we're saying, hey, we know there's consensus on this issue. Right. We're gonna work hard to uh, advance that particular stance. And um, I was unsure whether it would work or not, to yeah. be honest with you. I've, I've explained that you know, if this was a business enterprise, I think I'd be a terrible businessman because it's much easier to rally a base, you know, and, uh-huh. and get, you know, hunters and anglers, like, you know, I'm a hunter and angler. I, I could have jumped in and said, you know, hunting's my favorite thing to do in the world. I'd love to make another hunting organization. Right. Um, and, you know, you can really get the, the base worked out. But I was trying to do something different and fill a niche and really push the coalition as the main enterprise. And, um, and I think it's working fairly well. And one of the most heartening things I've seen is, and sometimes it's difficult, you can watch it happen, but I have seen red and blue come together. Uh, we were just out uh, interviewing some ranchers in Nevada, going uh-huh. on record as pro-federal uh, management of public lands, which is right. really good to show because I think there's, a, there's an assumption that these right. ranchers are, they're all the buddies, yeah. which, is, uh-huh. which is not the case. 
but it's it was really interesting watching uh you know we had a salt of the earth nevada red-blooded rancher and we had uh, one of my guys filming with me it was quintessential san francisco and uh and we were out there and the two of each other side-eyed each other like for 30 minutes <laughs> and it was like this recognition that they know what keep it public is and they we're like struggling with it. Like we know we agree on this issue and that's, that's all that Keep It Public is going to pursue. We know it's okay, but it was really a, uh, it's really interesting to, to watch it happen and I'm, and I'm happy that it's actually working. Like yeah. I, I do see it happen and uh, a, lot of our, a lot of our support um, mentions kind of the, I don't know if I'd say bipartisan, but this lack of a, of a kind of... Uh, platform that lends itself to one party right. over another and uh yeah it's been it's been great to see it's a real huh. proof of concept that i wasn't sure whether it would work out, work out or not huh that's a cool thing to if, if you would have told me that someone would come to the public land cause as you have from the standpoint of a political lab if it, lack of what it would it, yeah, it's a, lab. it a political lab? communication lab I, I, that wouldn't have been in my top thousand guesses. So. <laughs> so Randall, how did you get involved in this? Did you guys know each other? Or what's, how, how does a Western environmental historian get involved in Keep It Public? Um, so I... You had it, one of the coolest dissertations I've oh, ever heard of. You should well, talk about it. So I, so I reached out to Randall. Oh, he okay. reached out to me. Yeah, I, I um, was on another pod. I was on Steve Ranello's Mediator podcast right, yeah. and uh, Greg reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this. And he also had a side project going at Stanford involving uh, public, I mean, you can speak to this in more detail than I can, but he had a, a side project going where he was uh, doing public perception, polling on public perceptions of hunters. And that's something that I looked at in my dissertation was how historically hunters have been perceived by the non-hunting public and how that changed over time. So Greg reached out to me and he said, you know, I'm looking at this in the present, but it sounds like your research has, uh, could speak to the lar the longer story. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had a couple long conversations, um, about how our our work intersected and um and then at one point he reached out to me and he said hey i've got this idea for keep it public um and uh we we collaborated on uh, a video script for a little animated video explaining the history of public land so i sort of dug back into the you know the the the, the general readers on the the history of the american west and conservation movement etc and helped him sort of piece together a, a story about how we have this very unique system. Um, yeah. It's remarkably useful to have a historian around. It is. Yeah. I, oh, especially in this discussion. I don't think that's ever been said before, but <laughs> <laughs> no. And, I, think, and, I think most people would argue that we, we need fewer historians and fewer, no, well, fewer uh, students of the humanities. <laughs> right. The, the, those who would prefer we not learn the lessons from the past. Doomed to repeat it and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the animated video that Keep It Public put out, it was a lot of your research, a lot of both of you guys collaborating on that? Well, I knew, uh, I knew that I wanted to make a video on the kind of historical legitimacy of federal land. Right. Uh, you know, when I say public, we're basically talking about federally managed public right. land, these big swaths of it. And a lot of times I say 
BLM and people are like, what is that? Black Lives Matter? No. Bureau of Land Management. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for the sake of this podcast, BLM is the federal lands of the Bureau of Land Management under purview of the Department uh, of Interior. 40.6% of public lands, by far the biggest material agency. That? Okay. Yeah. And then U.S. Forest Service lands uh, under the Department of Agriculture. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service lands also under the Department of Interior. Um, so, Okay. So that's uh, that got you started down this. Yeah. So so Greg sort of had the idea, and I think you sent me an initial. Yeah. Basically, what happened is I got so sick of arguing with people on Facebook. (laughs) I'd get on there, (laughs) and uh, you know, there's someone. You can even be like a well a well-meaning person, right? Mm -hmm. Who's like characterizing the right. I, what I consider to be a dangerous uh, push, you know, this land transfer push mm-hmm. to transfer um, these public lands from the federal government to the states. They would say, you know, this is really uh, a group of people arguing about how to get states' land back. Right. And it would drive me crazy because it's never been state land. And I right. would get in these way too time-consuming arguments on Facebook, arguing with people and outlying history. And I was realizing, you know, I was going all the way back to the Louisiana Purchase. I'm like, <laughs> let me just break this down for you. Like, it's not, you know, it's not hard. It just takes a long time. And finally, I got so sick of writing this over and over and over and over again. I said, you know what? Let's make an animated video. Let's keep it tight. Let's, um, and let's not, I mean, you've seen the video. It's not I exactly have. a, uh, it's not exactly a big advocacy push. All it is is a history lesson. It, it is. And I posted it out on Hunt Talk, mm-hmm. and everybody said, that's the best explanation I have ever heard in four minutes. What is it? It's four minutes. Four minutes, yeah. Four minutes of how public lands in America became public lands. Well, I appreciate that. No, it, it's it a lot is. of hard work we, making this. We send the document back and forth, honing it. Yeah. <laughs> you got to make it concise. You got to make it clear. You got to make it accurate. Because yeah. if people are going to watch it, you're going to hear about it if there's anything in there that's not. Well, yeah, and there's right. this tension between like, hey, should we make a big advocacy push during the video and try and rally the crowd and maybe get donations or that sort of thing? But then it's like, you know what? History speaks for itself here. It's very hard to understand the history of federal lands in America and come to the conclusion that they're anything but legitimate. Right. You know? Yeah. And so I was like, I mean, this is stuff that we all learned in social studies, but it's it's been a long time since then. And it was... Uh, <laughs> Even longer for me. I'm sitting here. <clears throat> Greg is 28. Patrick, his director of operations, who doesn't have the mic on, is 29. And Randall is 30. And I'm 52. I'm older than Methuselah's grandmother compared to you guys. <laughs> but that, where can people see that? that video again. I mean, right now, if someone wanted to Google it, where would they we, find it? You can go keep to keepitpublic.org. Keep it's, on, uh, it's on there. We're on Facebook at, uh, you know, it's Facebook slash Public Land Forever on Instagram. Hold, hold on. Wait, wait. Facebook slash. It's facebook.com slash Public Land Forever. Okay. Not keep it public. Public Land Forever. Yeah. Someone had that Facebook, uh, had that <sighs> Facebook handle, you know. Uh, Would have been nice. Would have been nice. You want but... me to sell it to you? <laughs> Do you want it? <laughs> yeah. Do you really? No. I own, <sighs> I own the public like, land sportsman. It's like, I own talk to Pat. He's sitting right here. I, yeah. I own so many public land domains. When my domain renewals come in, it's like, holy <laughs> crap, that is $500 just to protect all these domains <laughs> that I might someday use. So No, I'm just kidding you, Greg. I don't own it. I no. got excited. I was like, yeah, I'll buy it. That'd be great. Um, it would only cost you a quarter. 
That's good because that's about all the money we have. Yeah. <laughs> I bet someone floating around Rendezvous has. They might. I'll track them down. Maybe, yeah. maybe they yeah. do. So we've Instagram. also got like Instagram has been great for us, um, yeah. and that's keep it public. Uh, there's underscores between keep it public, you know, so two right. underscores. Yeah. Um, my social media people have been told anytime keep it public posts something, we repost, or if it's anything I do related to public land, we tag hashtag keep it public. We appreciate it a lot. I mean. We talk about this all the time, but you're one of the most knowledgeable voices out there in the hunting and angling community about public lands. Well, Seriously. We're, we're in a bad state of affairs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> no, but I mean it, man. Like coming on this podcast, you know, representing Keep It Public, uh, theoretically being considered an expert in this area um, and, and uh, sitting across from you, someone that I consider to be immensely knowledgeable when it comes to these public lands was that uh, was a little bit intimidating. Well, I appreciate that, Greg. But when someone has written dissertations on this, like Randall has, I I'm almost afraid to interject anything here because it'll be like, no, Randy, that's not how it happened, uh, Randy, uh, uh, Randy. Huh? But no, you, no. you guys, it'd be polite and say, hey, could you pause the button for a second and we'll correct that. <laughs> so, no post no, edit. There, there's a, a couple things that you guys have mentioned. Um, one, of, one of them, Randall, you mentioned was how hunters have been perceived by the public historically. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Ranella's podcast uh, that you might have been on that I decided to go and buy the book, uh, Hunting in the American Imagination. Yep. That has been such an eye opener for me about how we ended up where we end where we are. And that book only goes through like 1910, I think. Or, yeah, it's sort yeah. of the long 19th century from the right. from the yeah. early. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I guess it goes back to the some of the earlier colonial period. I mean, he really yeah. is talking about the 18th and 19th century. Yeah, and, and that stuff. It, it was so interesting to read that. Well, back then you could only vote if you owned X number of acres. Uh-huh. So. All of the the agrarians, the farmers, had all the voting power and they hated the hunters. They called them the backwoodsmen. Mm-hmm. I'm reading that stuff. I'm like, now this is all making sense. Some wild yahoo like me who wants to run the ridges <laughs> and just go and chase the game. Those people have been criticizing my craziness since time began. No wonder I'm, I am. But it, it was that kind of historical perspective that opened my eyes wider to this is part of how we got here. Yeah. This is why my image of a hunter is what it is. And then when they talk about how printing and everything became so popular in the 1850s or something, mm-hmm. why all these little dime magazines. And then, yeah, you have, I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating story that he tells, but yeah, that, I, that's one of my favorite parts of the book where he describes all of these young men leaving farms, going into the city, working as clerks for the first time and, you know, sort of the first desk you know the 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 first uh, generation of of men seated at a desk right. working with numbers and papers and things like that, and they go back to their tenement houses or whatever they're living in, and they they read these these uh, sort of like pulp fiction stories about the frontier, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. a, it's some way of holding on to that that you know they feel you know this sort of emasculated by their by their new jobs in, right. the, in this changing economy, and yeah, so it's it, a, it's, a, it's a very challenging read to follow and stay with. Yeah. But it for me, I bet you every chapter I've had to go back and read it well, at oh, least yeah. an extra time or a second or a third time. But it's so helpful for me to understand how hunters had this image back then even of 
And, and it's not an image that's been static. It seems like it's floated and moved. And yeah, he, he has a great, <clears throat> he has a great um, line in there that I'll paraphrase. And he said, I think it's at the end of the book. He says, um, hunting is like a constellation in the American cultural sky. And so it's sort of the same parts are out there, but it changes on the horizon over time as it relates to uh, everything else, you know? So, so yeah, it, it's always in flux and it's always imagined differently based on larger shifts in culture. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and so, he's, a, yeah, he's a brilliant guy and a, and a great writer. Yeah. And so I, I, reading that, I'm like, mm -hmm. well, that, that could have almost been written today. Mm -hmm. I mean, different characters and different events, but as far as how it's traveled and uh, what it's changed, what has changed it and how it's changed, it's, I don't know, if, if people are uh, listening and want to go read it and get it, it's... Yeah, What's it's, it called it's, again? It's, hunting, it's hunting, <clears throat> hunting in the American Imagination. Um, and it's, the author's name is Daniel Justin Herman. Um, Produced by the Smithsonian Press, I think. I believe it and is. And he's, yeah, he's also got another, he's got a great um, article that was published in Montana, the magazine of Western history um, called Hunting Democracy. And really? It, and what? it's, and the, it's a shorter article. It's, you know, it's a, it's a shorter uh, piece that's sort of derivative of some of the later chapters of that book. And it looks at um, struggles over... Uh, sort of the right to hunt right. at the, the turn of the century. Yeah. Control over land and resources and what it meant in the U.S. to be a hunter. Yeah. Um, he makes the point that uh, sportsmen, like the word gentleman, means something very different in Europe. You know, it has these right. connotations of... And then so in, in America, every man could be a gentleman, right? And it was sort of a, a term that was democratized, an identity that was democratized. Um, and, and he makes the point that... Uh, for a lot of Americans, they they thought that something, you know, sportsman was also a title that should be done away with, and every man, you know, every citizen is a, is a sportsman as well. So, yeah, yeah he's, a, I mean, he's a really interesting thinker, and and uh, if you're interested in this stuff, I'd encourage everybody to yeah. go out and check out his the, work. The other part that struck me was how at that time, so many people who came here were rejecting everything in Europe, mm -hmm. rejection of some of the. <clears throat> the restrictions on religion and how taxation was and how so many other things. And one of the things that they rejected was the own, the king owning the deer. So, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, that's the concept we think of. And mm -hmm. so when they came here, they completely rejected the idea that some nobility, some whoever was going to own the game. Yeah. And that, so here we are today. It's wonderful. By that, where we yeah. hold wildlife in a public trust situation, yeah. which that didn't happen by accident. These colonists came and said, I don't want to get my arm chopped off for feeding my family by shooting a deer today. <laughs> so, but yeah, he makes, I mean, he makes another interesting point. I think when he talks about the, the colonial relationship to the European tradition of, mm -hmm. of hunting, when he says that if you look, if you look in Europe in the late 18th century, every sort of nobleman or political figure is is having their portrait painted atop a horse <laughs> chasing, you know, in, in the in the act of the chase. Right. And it's this classic image that that um, and 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 he makes the point that if you try to look for uh, American colonials, 
um, they've rejected this image. Yeah. And so it's sort of, it's not necessarily that, that Americans were just dyed in the wool, you know, hunting fanatics at, at, at the, at the dawn of the, the, the country, you know, it, it's not that case. It's not that at all. It's that there's this sort of very complicated interplay of factors where they're rejecting European traditions, but they also have these woods and waters and, and animals in their back. I mean, so it's, yeah, he, he tells a really interesting story. Yeah. There. The, yeah. the part I hope, I was hoping it would go forward then to the whole public land kind of period where Roosevelt, Grinnell, Pinchot, mm -hmm. all of them started looking at the vast Western estate mm -hmm. and saying, all right, how are we going to save this? How are we going to keep this intact? For as Roosevelt always said, those yet unborn or those in the womb of time. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm hoping that maybe you guys can guide me. Maybe there is some book out there that talks about that next establishment because, uh, the Great Fire, or no, the Big Burn. Big Burn. That gives a lot of history mm -hmm. about how it happened and how the burn of 19, what was it? Ten, nine and 10 or mm -hmm. whatever. It came right through here. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this was right, the edge of it right here in Missoula. Uh, Drive down I-90 and yeah, it's... Right. Yep. But that gives a lot of history about the battle that it took to create the public estate or at least agencies. What was it then? It wasn't called the Forest Services, it was called the... Forest reserves. Or yeah, so it was the establishment of the forest so, reserves. Yeah. yeah, so in 1891, Congress empowered uh, the president to set aside forest reserves. Right. And then, sort of fitfully, <laughs> over the next few decades, it emerged and into what we now know as the Forest Service. Right. Okay. And I don't know that I have the really detailed knowledge of it to say. So there's a bunch of back and forth. I think. Um, initially it goes from the interior to agri or agriculture to interior back to agriculture, something like that. And, okay. But, but Pinchot, um, Gifford Pinchot really is, uh, I believe in, in 97, there's another. 1897. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, These are how historians speak. Uh, yeah, I should say, well, yeah. So, so in, in, um, there's, there's more legislative action right around the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. um, and then Pinchot is really, he's a programmatic thinker. He's described by someone as a magnificent bureaucrat. So he had this, <laughs> which is a, not a phrase that you encounter very often, right? So uh, uh, Magnificent bureaucrat. Yeah, so, so if Teddy one. Roosevelt is always, you know, described as this guy who's just full of boyish enthusiasm and a sort of a crusader, um, an impassioned advocate, right? right. Um, Pinchot was the magnificent bureaucrat who had a vision for how you, you uh, sort of make a system, you know, you systematically manage and regulate these vast tracts of land. So, yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, what's interesting is that for the, for most of the 19th century, um, the story is really one of disposal. Mm -hmm. The federal land, get, if the federal government getting rid right. of land, all the homestead act, yeah, one, all the yeah, the, the, I mean, one point eight billion down to about six hundred and forty million. Is that right? Mm, gosh, now we're going to throw around oh, numbers. numbers. It's roughly right. I mean, I, but, yeah. So, so the federal, so the federal government, I believe, got rid of um, got rid of about nine hundred million acres. Is that right? Yeah. Over the course of the 19th century, about a third of those were sold outright. Okay. So up until the Civil War, 
really the policy was selling land mm -hmm. through the general land office. And that and there are a whole host of problems with, with land oh, sales. Yeah. I mean, if you read about this, <laughs> yeah, if you read about the South, right. you know, <laughs> rampant speculation, rampant yeah. fraud, yeah. all sorts of cronyism, this and that. <laughs> um, and, and it was a big issue, you know, and, and this is sort of viewed as one of the resources that the, that the, the nation has to support itself and land sales constituted a significant portion of federal revenues right. in part of the, the, you know, in the early 19th century. Um, but it also, you know, the land sales and speculation caused wild swings and, and uh, I mean, it's a complicated story. Right. And, and if you want to, you know, <laughs> but anyway, um, in the middle of the civil war, there's really a shift. And 1862 is sort of a big year because you have the Homestead Act, uh, the Morrill Act, which is sort of establishes land grant universities. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the Pacific Railroad Act, or yeah. one of them. Which <laughs> granted the railroads significant portions of land to yeah. build the railroads. Yeah, and so, so in that moment, really, and it's, you know, that's one way that you enact a dramatic shift in national policy is you have one, essentially one party leave the union and, <laughs> and all of a sudden the, the Republicans can do whatever they want. But in 62, sort of the Republican vision of... of um, free men, free soil, et cetera, yeah. is put into practice. And from 62 on, the federal government, rather than selling land, is giving it away. Right. Right. Uh, so under, under the Homestead Act. Under the Homestead Act, under the Railroad Acts, and then also yeah. giving a lot of land away to states. Right. Um, right. Through, yeah, for land-grant universities and then to fund public schools. And they'd been granting land to states um, since the late in, yeah, since no, the late 18th century. I mean, some of these, you know, some of right. the eastern the eastern states as well, following the land yeah. ordinances in the 1780s are receiving um, sections of land yeah. to support public education. Um, but in the 1860s, you have this shift from sales to transfer or granting land. Um, and then by the 1870s and 80s, some some folks are beginning to think, you know, maybe we need to rethink national policy. And so in the 18, really the 1890s, I think we can say there's a, there's a movement uh, at the national level towards retention yeah. with the creation of forest reserves, um, fish and wildlife refuges, where, you know, the terminology varies over time, but there's a movement towards retention. So I think that's an interesting point is that it required deliberate action to preserve these lands that right. we have today. Someone um, had to make a change in what was going on, and that was a deliberate decision. Right, right. We shouldn't take it for granted that these lands aren't. I mean, there's a there's a, a policymaker in the 1870s that says we, you know, we we could send the the army out west to just have them protect these lands from all the the squatters and illegal guys cutting down trees illegally and mining mm -hmm. and doing all this stuff. So we couldn't do it. So we might as well just get rid of them all. Yeah. Sell them all, sell them all while there's still trees. Privatize it all, and yeah. just get out of the land business. And I mean, it's very hard to imagine the world I live in today in yeah. Missoula, Montana, without all these public lands around. Yeah, I, so I, it'd be so hard for me. Is it a fair assessment from a historical standpoint that hunters led this? cause for this change of this mindset, not just of conservation, but also a public estate for the people? Or is that just, hey, the, every, all the politicians at the time were hunters, so it was just a function of you know, the, the reality of the day. 
or because I often hear, and sometimes I think I'm maybe guilty if it's not correct, of making the assumption that without hunters going back to Roosevelt and all those, who, you know, mm-hmm. Hornaday and all the the groups of guys at that time, uh, Grinnell, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have public lands. Is that is that fair? Or is that kind of like Randy? You're just trying to no, I think cut yourself fair. on yeah. the back. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to create a narrative that supports my case. I think it's fair. A lot of the prominent individuals involved in this big turn of the century conservation movement were hunters. And um, in the case of Roosevelt, I mean, it makes sense. In the case of Roosevelt, he's a, he's a guy that from his childhood had a, had a strong interest in the natural world. Mm-hmm. And um, like many other men of his generation at the turn of the century, uh, especially sort of wealthy urbanites, yeah, yeah. sport hunting, was a craze, right? It was a it was a phenomenon at the turn of the century that the, these men were going out and going on these large expeditions, and and um, political power was concentrated. Um, yeah. Political power is concentrated among sort of a, a select subset of American society, and so yeah. there's obviously some overlap there. Um, but I, I mean, you you often hear really explicit stories about how it was hunters pushing for. Pittman Robertson, like right. they really led the charge oh, sure. of living. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's coincidental that they, they were hunters. I think, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, okay. And there are other, you know, there are other environmental actors at the turn of the century that that are not hunters. Um, yeah, they don't. Uh, I think resonate quite as much in 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 these stories that we tell. Um, but you know, John Muir, for example. Right. John Muir, home. for example. Um, I think he's out in. He's out in Yosemite with Roosevelt yep. and he's sitting there and he says, when are you going to, you know, give this Teddy, up. When are you going to do away with this boyish pastime <laughs> of chasing these animals around with the rifle? Right. You know, yeah. so there are people, there are people at that time that are, that are deeply concerned with environmental degradation and preserving right. these landscapes that we think of as sacred who aren't hunters. Right. And actually in the case of Muir, We've looked, uh, oh, yeah, looked I mean, the side-eyed story. At, 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 the, at the practice. But, um, yeah, I think it's fair. It's, it's absolutely fair to say that, that sport hunters were central and leading actors in, in the turn-of-the-century conservation movement. I think to deny that would be... Yeah, and, uh, and also to the Gaza public land. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that... The, I guess... Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's hard to distinguish the two at the turn of the century, really. Um, And I don't know that there's sort of a public lands, um, the idea of of public lands as sort of a a treasure, right? At at that Mm -hmm. point, they're really, you know, Gifford Pinchot is really thinking in very practical terms about Mm -hmm. conserving resources and the greatest good good for for the the greatest greatest number for for the the longest period. Yeah, Yeah. so... um, so I don't know that, that Pinchot and some of the technocrats, the, those magnificent bureaucrats are really thinking about, <laughs> about what, what, you know, what we're doing is setting aside a treasure for, uh, for the people. I mean, some, some actors at the time, you know, Roosevelt is really thinking that this is sort of a source of um, spiritual renewal for the American nation. You know, he always, right. he, he's, he talks he's sort about of prone it. to thinking in terms of uh, national spirit and race. And this is sort of, you know, who who Americans are, where they derive, you know, from what they derive their identity. So, so there's, there's sort of people of all types, um, 
bring their own ideas to the table. But yeah, I I mean, public lands, the idea that the federal government was going to retain public lands and manage them in perpetuity um, really is an idea that emerges at the turn of the century. I mean, Roosevelt... um, Becomes president in 1901 when McKinley gets assassinated. And he establishes a public lands commission in 1903 to sort of study all the problems because, you know, a lot of the problems that emerge over the second half of the 19th century as Americans are pushing further and further west have to do with the... um, there are all sorts of issues when you take Eastern land management practices and apply them to the landscape <laughs> of the West because it's yeah. just a different animal. Or when you have an indigenous population that's living there that isn't absolutely isn't really that excited about being told what to do. Yeah, and I mean, just the, the, the aridity is you know the defining characteristic of the West. There, right. there aren't water. There's not water. There's not trees. So, you know, the Homestead Act, for example, um, 160 acres. That might work. Yeah, you're going to have a, yeah, you're going to, so I mean, in the 19th century, 160 acres of, of sort of unirrigated land is not going to, is not going to work. And 160 acres, you're going to have a hard time irrigating all of that in that, you know, in that period of time. So, so one of the issues is that these policies that are designed in the East don't really um, work on the ground in the West. The Homestead Act also didn't really consider the idea of, um, you know, people wanting to claim land for timber or mineral extraction. And so there are other acts in in subsequent decades after the Homestead Act to try to work these issues out, right? And so in 1903, Roosevelt establishes a public lands commission to just say, to look at all the laws on the books and figure out how you make sense of them, how you resolve some of these issues. And the public lands commission eventually comes back, sort of floats this idea of, um, you know, the, the only way that this is going to work, that these lands aren't going to be just destroyed in the short run is through um, federal management. Federal and this idea of retention and management, yeah. Huh. So, so uh, now this is going to go to you, Greg. Being a <clears throat> political uh, communications expert. Here comes the thin ice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I promised these guys I wouldn't put them out on any limbs or any thin ice. <clears throat> and Greg just said, oh, oh, I see the thin ice coming. Um, with what Randall's given us as the background, is, is the world of politics today so different that there's just no way America is ever going to have these, the ability to make decisions that are as profound as happened there where you would say, hey, we are going to change policy how we look at something like public lands. And and in today's world, it might not be public lands. It might be something else. Or it might be public lands and say, we're going to change the policy that's been there for 120 years. And we're guess what? We're going to get rid of this. Hey. No, I think there's, there's definitely the opportunity for profound legislation to get passed. You know, there's an interesting uh, historical argument, come to think of it, that, um, that says the post-war period being after World War II in the United States was just, uh, it was really a lull in polarization. If you go and you look at some of the uh, political rhetoric in the newspapers of the 1800s, it's brutal. Every bit as brutal as today. Yeah. And, uh, and you look in this post-war period and, um, 
you know, you got radios and then, and then TVs come out and there's three real network channels and that's where the entire population is getting its news. Yeah. And then the argument says that, um, you know, when you get to the 80s and you get the FCC deregulation followed by cable news, it immediately expanded back into this model of, um, you know, countless sources of information and selective exposure where you're only going to select, or you're only going to expose yourself to uh information that you're already predisposed to agree with. Um, so it's interesting because I think so much of this profound legislation that we think of and these uh, really monumental changes in our country, they have happened during periods of immense polarization. So we are very polarized and very divided, but I, but I think there are uh, instances and cases where it's, where it's certainly possible to make yeah. progress. Yeah. So you've It's looked, always been hard. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's worth pointing out too that it's, it's not as if at the end of the 19th century when conservation really takes off as a force, I would argue, for good in American right. life. Um, it's not as if Americans of all stripes got together and sang kumbaya right. and agreed on it. I mean, yeah. you know, some, you know, yeah. a federal, you know, um, and Gifford Pinchot was well aware of that. He wanted um, local people on the ground to serve as 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 rangers, right? Yeah. Um, That's not talked about enough. But, that federal management is often locals, right? Right. Yeah. And but but but, but at the same time, I mean, the, you know, there are um, you know federal uh, employees working for these management agencies. You know, early game wardens were, you know, they had targets on their back. Yeah. Um, uh, early forest rangers trying to shut down illegal mining or illegal uh, logging operations um, were sort of chased off by lynch mobs or yeah. hung in effigy. Um, and people called the, you know, the creation of forest reserves, you know, these, you know, it's, it's a great lockup, they called it, and, right. and said it was, you know, some of the most damnable um, action we've ever had out of Washington. So I don't think we should... I don't think we should um, tell ourselves stories that, that sort of all Americans have always been on board about this. But I think, you know, ultimately what Keep It Public is about is, is saying, here's an issue we care about and putting our cards on the table. It's very straightforward. You know, politics is about sort of a, a and Greg's probably got a much uh, better definition, but politics is about sort of the, the negotiation of power within a society. And, and so we say, you know, we believe in public lands and there's a lot of us out there and, and we're, you know, we stand for it. So, so <clears throat> Greg, I sit on so many panels, so many boards, so many places. <clears throat> and like the other day I posted something that a friend of mine wrote about the repeal of clean water provisions. And I said something to the effect of, I can't believe here in America we are talking, we're even having this debate, that those who want to remove these provisions, I know they don't want to make our water cleaner. Why are we even having this discussion? And some people sent me messages or chimed in and this gets to this polarization, mm -hmm. kind of like this binary argument that it's either zero or one. It's, it, you're either, it, you, th everything is looked at today in this binary computer world. <laughs> I mean, for lack of a better analogy, you're either a zero or you're one. You're an R or a D, you're a left or a right. And that's how people behave. We have plenty of data to show that. And it's so frustrating for me that I can't say, you know what, I'm for clean water. 
I don't really give a damn one way or the other who, what, where, what party. Since when has clean water become something other than our most basic need that becomes a political football? So I look at that and I say, if we can't even have political agreement on something like clean water, am I smoking something to think we're ever going to have some consent, maybe not even consensus is the right word, some solution to something as complicated as public land? Well, there's always been people pounding the ground. And I mean, like Randall said, it wasn't kumbaya. It's always been hard. There's, I mean, I think we owe it to future generations to do what previous generations did. We got to stand up for what we believe in and we have to really go hard after um, our objectives. I, public lands for me is a cold dead hands issue. It's my yeah. pet issue. I absolutely believe in it 100%. It's part of what makes America a really unique country. And as you guys were talking about earlier with, uh, you know, hunters coming into this country and uh, being a little bit more egalitarian than, um, you know, than the old world where it was the king's deer. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking earlier about how is this happening? How is it becoming a political football? And I think the how is natural. I think everything tries to become a bargaining chip when you're trying to get elected to office. And I see okay. the biggest threat to public lands. And you'll have to forgive me. I don't know if I was, uh, I don't know if we were recording when we, when we were talking about this earlier, but the biggest threat to political or to public lands that I see is this natural tendency to want to dichotomize the issue into left, right. right. You know, and then we saw the, what was it 2012 when the GOP put in the platform that the best thing to do with America's public lands was to divest them. Right. And it was devastating. Mm -hmm. Republicans have been huge in the in the creation of this system. Yep. There are plenty of Republicans who um, believe in the legitimacy and and beneficial elements of the public land system. And I think it becomes really difficult when um, it becomes attached to a D or an R to kind of buck your preferred party and yeah. say, you know what, I'm I'm going to stand up for this particular issue, whether it's whether it's red or blue. And so I see that perhaps is one of the biggest objectives of Keep It Public is to say, no, we're not going to let public lands become political fodder or a political football, as you put it. I'd like to make it absolutely political poison to take right. an anti-public land stance. It shouldn't be D versus R. That, you know, I've got issues on both sides of the aisle. We all do. The entire country thinks of themselves <laughs> as people who, I, you know, I really look at I look at everything by the issues. Yeah, I absolutely think of that way myself. The data says otherwise, but uh, you know, you put a DNR and people are going to behave differently. And that's what's really scary about uh, about public lands recently is it's turned into this thing where I feel like there are forces that are trying to leverage the bipolar nature of political dialogue and say, hey, this is a great way to transfer lands and then we can privatize them after right. we get the states' rights people all fired up. And um, yeah, I... It, it's tough because I don't have the solution. I studied the problem, you know? <laughs> Wait a second. You're like that one commercial where the guy says, hey, the bank's being robbed right now. And he looks like a security guard. And Probably and, do something about that. Yeah, you should do something about that. Well, I just, I'm here. I'm the bank or the burglar monitor or whatever. When well, I felt that, that way. And so that's where, uh, <laughs> that's where we decided to jump in with Keep It Public. Well, you know? I think it's, if there's ever a time in my life where we need to focus on issues rather than parties or alliances or whatever, however you want to divide it. It's now. And anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I've said I'm not R or D. 
I am a member of the hunting, fishing, and public access party. It's not even a party. It's a movement. It's a ideology. It's whatever. And I don't really care about R's and D's. Yeah, we need to stand together and say, am, you know what? I, I'm an equal opportunity abuser, an equal opportunity supporter. Regardless of where you are, this is my cold, dead hands issue. And so I'm, I'm always interested when people like you guys study this stuff, because for me, it's all about just my gut instinct and 25, 30 years of being engaged in this and making all kinds of, making a fool of myself on so many occasions and saying in stupid situations, things that shouldn't have been said, uh, trusting people that I thought I could trust and then have their <laughs> walk out the plank and they saw the plank off and it's like, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, but I, I look at this and so someone like me, someone like our listeners who are so concerned about public lands, it seems to me that your idea is about the only hope I can think of to make this issue apolitical, that everybody, regardless of what stripe you're on, should realize the value of public lands. Or if you don't, you should disregard America's feelings about public lands at your own peril. You know, regardless been, of what side you're on. Yeah. Hey, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's been really heartening to see, um, you know, the, the big public lands rallies that have been happening. Yeah. We had Helena, uh, Boise, there's one in New Mexico. And uh, it, it's, it's like people have been waiting for instances of bipartisanship or mm -hmm. waiting for people to say, hey, it's okay. Or, you know, you and I disagree on a ton, but like at the very least, can we, we know we agree on this particular issue. Are we like willing to say that together? And I, I feel like uh, the polarized atmosphere may lend itself to kind of a, a situation where people are desperate for, uh, for acts of bipartisanship. And I feel like there's nothing more, more bipartisan than, uh, than public lands. And so, yeah, absolutely. The, the political realm has a target on its back from us. We do not want public lands getting thrown around. And um, yeah, we're doing everything we can to fight that. I mean, you said, I think you, you, called, us the, you called us the best hope. I mean, uh, that's quite generous. I think uh, I, I love what we're doing. We're, we're part of a rich tapestry of a lot of organizations that I think are doing wonderful work here, both on the, you know, you've got, uh, you've got the recreational side, non-consumptive use side, uh, hunters and anglers have been, you know, we've been absolutely huge in, uh, in carrying the public lands banner. And um, we're just really happy to kind of throw our hat in the ring. And I think we're filling it. I think we're filling a niche that, that, needed, to be, uh, that needed to be filled. Oh, I, I can tell you for sure as someone who, when I, I think before we turned the mics on, I told you I started this concept of a public land hunting gig message in uh, over 10 years ago now. And at the time people were like, Newberg, you're dumber than you look. <laughs> and I look pretty dumb. Um, and then I stuck with it, stuck with it. And I would say about five years ago, all of a sudden it's like the whole public land thing became pretty cool. And maybe I'm... Oh, there's been a big wave. Yeah. Maybe I'm, my timing in this isn't right. Maybe it's just I finally woke up and pulled my head away from it and started listening more. And... Uh, now I go like I go to the public land rallies in Helena. I go to other places and talk on public land, and I see hippies and loggers there. <clears throat> I see 
ranchers mm -hmm. and dirtbag rock climbers there. Yeah, in a non-metaphor, I saw a cowboy hat next to dreadlocks. <laughs> yeah. And the girl with dreadlocks was wearing a Backcountry Hunters and Anglers public landowner t-shirt. And I was like, hell yeah, that's what I love to see. <laughs> there it is right there. But I see those instances where it gives me hope that, because I, and I started down this path, I didn't finish my point, but <clears throat> so many times I'll try to reach out to a group just strictly on the topic of public land. And they're like, yeah, but you're a hunter. I get interviewed by national media often. And there's this bias that they're painting the picture from of, well, we want to do a story because we're curious why you hunters would fight the, the, on behalf of public lands. It, it's almost this, well, you guys are this and we are mm -hmm. that. So, uh, you know, We'll live, we'll put a fence between us and we'll live, we'll try to live harmoniously, but there's, we could never join together to, mm -hmm. for a cause. Yeah, and it goes both ways. Yeah, I, I'm, and I, I get the criticisms from the hunting group. Well, you're going to actually do something with the Sierra Club? Do you know, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what? You've mistaken me for someone who cares. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't. On some other topic, maybe I'll be yeah. on the other side of the table. But I, whatever. Well, yeah, that's, that's proof of concept of uh, yeah, this aggressive isolation. It's like, listen, we're not. Tell here. me what that. Tell me, go into what that really means. Aggressive isolation. So I'm talking about our. Yeah, that's a weird sounding term. I'm talking about our policy stance. Is where you get into danger is when people say, well, the Sierra Club has done X, Y, and Z, and you're saying, yeah, but I'm only talking about public lands. Right. Yeah, but I'm only talking about public lands. Whenever you're getting it from both sides, and we decided to do that as a mission of our nonprofit is to say the only thing that we're going to advocate for is the protection of public lands, period. Right. We're not going to throw anything else in there. And it's funny, we even get criticism going the other way, where they say, like, I like your message on public lands, but like, but what about all this? Yeah. It's like people <laughs> want to know that you agree with them on people literally everything the before right. yeah. they agree to support you. And it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting experiment to say, this is it. Have, well, we, have we always been like that as Americans? Well, I, I mean, I think it sort of goes against, in some respects, it, it's, it goes against human nature because we're such tribal creatures. We draw ourselves into circles of, us versus them, and and that's how you that's how we sort of fashion our own identities, right? Yeah. As you say, I'm me because I'm not like that person over there that you know, and and I identify. Do you know with about the minimal group paradigm? Oh, have you heard that? <laughs> no. So well, there's don't, this, tell me. <laughs> there's this I, old, I, I'm like taking <clears throat> notes, guys. Yeah. I've got two pages of red notes here already. Well, there's this, uh, there's this old psychological concept where, you know, they were studying social identity, how these groups form. Yeah. And social psychologists in a laboratory, you know, they're running behavioral experiments where they're bringing people in and they're being randomly assigned to conditions and, and shown different things according to these conditions. Anyways, they bring some people in and they, they show them a... Uh, and I'm not familiar with painters, but I remember the I remember the article quite well. Um, it was Kandinsky and Klee are, are painters, and they okay. said which which painting do you prefer? You know, these college kids had never seen uh, yeah. had never seen these paintings, and they they picked one. You know, and then they they're like, oh, well, what do you know? Like you're with the you're with the Kandinsky supporters, and and yo, you're with the you're with the Klee people, and uh, and then within one experimental session, like by the end of the session, people were completely biased against one another, behaviorally, attitudinally, they'd completely split. Over and it's pain. totally arbitrary. They've done the same thing with estimating, I think, I think there's one that's like the number or size of dots on a page. 
And they're like, oh, you're an overestimator. You're an underestimator. It's some arbitrary threshold and people split. And so it's, it's very much a, an inherent psychological phenomenon to, to split into the in-group and the out-group and then base subsequent behavior and decisions off of that. Which then permeates our politics and our policy and, and our Yeah, policy. you add in things you that you actually attribute value the past to. And you tell different stories about the present. And I mean, it's... Huh. <laughs> See, in the business world, they teach the policy of abundance thinking and scarcity thinking. What's that? It, it's, it, it's these different mindsets. And it will tell you how, in my CPA life, it'll tell you how a client's going to behave. Abundance thinkers focus on the top line, the revenue line. We can always make more. We can always make more. Scarcity thinkers think on the expense side. Okay, you can only cut expenses to zero. And if you ignore the top line, pretty soon you're still out of business because, yeah, your expenses are zero, but your revenue is zero. Yeah. So it's kind of that. And then the personality types that are that, you can almost predict how they're going to respond to advice you give whether you can properly identify them. So you got people coming in for like uh, tax advice and you run them through a battery of questionnaires to figure out whether they're abundant. They don't know it, but I'm asking them questions and I have have notes in their file that tells me if I think they're an abundance thinker or a scarcity thinker. And you have to give a completely different set of advice to a scarcity thinker than you do to an abundance thinker. Uh, (laughs) And so when you were saying that, I'm thinking, well, in the business world, we have these kind of dichotomies of, mm-hmm. of perception and, and approach, but I've never taken it so far as to think that people would argue over how many dots are on a page and on a... Not even argue. Sport. I mean, in totally Ill- irrelevant tasks, they'll like huh. punish the out group and, and really support the in group, yeah. Really? That, so th- th- then getting to the point of... I, I worry that Americans, and maybe they've always been. So this is, this is so helpful to me because my observation is that Americans have become apologists. That if we vote for somebody, we feel like we have to apologize for anything that person does that is obviously not in the public interest. So I voted for John. Okay, he voted to sell the public lands, but hey, guess what? He was good, good on taxes. He was good on this. And and no longer do Americans have the ability to say, hey, John, I voted for you. Yeah. That's a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. They feel like they have to be an apologist almost to confirm that, hey, I didn't make, he, he, my vote wasn't wasted or I didn't make a bad decision. Or, or better than the alternative. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, sooner or later, if better than the alternative is always lower than, than what it should be, yeah. it's the race to zero. <laughs> really low bar. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering, you know, have Americans always been like that or just a, in age, am I getting older and the way I engage in politics, I now observe, well, no sense in trying to convince that guy he's an apologist or whatever. I, I don't know. Is that the psyche and the nature of who we are as Americans? You know, there's no way to look back and there's no way to run experiments a hundred years ago, but it would be my uh, guess that given kind of the yeah, the psychological makeup of, of us as humans that, yeah, it's, uh, it's always been kind of dichotomous like that. Huh. So that, uh, I'm trying to just in my mind craft a way other than what you are doing, how in this crazed dichotomous world you bring people together on a topic other than to defend the isolation of that topic to no end that we, we don't we don't care we're not if you ask us what our position is on abortion we're not, we don't care pat and i disagree uh, over plenty of things yeah 
You know, right. of Pat, the director of operations, sitting right yeah. here. We disagree on plenty of things, but we're in lockstep over public lands. Right. Yeah. And so, I, why is that so hard for people to to get to? Or maybe it's not, and we just need to get your platform higher and louder and bigger. You know, I, I'm, I'm wondering. I'm wondering how it'll turn out, right? Yeah. So, so we're essentially, I guess you could call it like marketing bipartisanship or marketing you know, a coalition if it's not politics, if it's uh, mountain bikers and hunters and that sort of thing. And, I, you know, I wonder what the end game is. I think we get a lot of uh, public support for that. I think people mm-hmm. have been looking for that message, but I wonder where the, the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Is it enough to actually change behavior? When are people going to stand up in their respective parties and say, this is unacceptable? Right. You know, and when not is, just say, well, at the very... When yeah. primaried for their stance on public lands? Yeah, we, right. the primaries yeah. are, where, are where it has to happen. Yeah, it, it's crazy. I mean, that's what happens in the West is let's see, because of the gerrymandering, let's see how far out to the fringe we can get a candidate. And if you're closer to the middle, our fringe candidate's going to wipe you out in the primary. Yeah. So we don't want you to just transfer public lands. We want you to sell them and give yeah. them away to your... I mean, you know how, how I how said earlier, the uh, the distribution of, of Americans' policy viewpoints is a normal distribution. Yeah. Um, that's not the case for elected officials. It's as polarized as no, get. They're we, way we, more we, extreme. We're, we're, okay. Way more extreme than the average American. Right. Yeah. And in my life, I've, and again, as you get older, you, you get a little better at observing because you realize you really don't know anything. I mean, I'm so much dumber today than I was when I was 20. Man, if I was as smart today as I thought I was when I was 20, I, I'd, I'd be so far ahead. But point being is, is this just my observation or has it been that way? That this is how Americans are. This is how we think. And our politicians, our elected officials, are they really moving further apart? And they seem to me like they are. I think a, a combination of gerrymandering plus the primary system lends itself to... Um, yeah, the, to, to people really on the polls, really advocating for strong positions that will resonate with the base, essentially. And, you, you know, you get districts that are more and more in one direction and you're going right. to get... And that person um, is, It's a race to demonstrate that you are the ultimate Democrat or Republican in the primary. Right. And so that I mean, we've person, all seen it, yeah. Right, the person's safe so they can move their stake way, way over there. They're not going to get primaried out. They're mm-hmm. not going to lose in the general. So we don't we don't have much of a middle left. And so... And part of it's, I mean, structural as well in that our system requires majority, you know, we don't have a parliamentary system. We require majorities and, yeah. and, and, and so it's hard to get away from a two-party system. Yeah, and when you have a two-party yeah. system, it's a zero-sum game essentially. Right. Right. You know, one, if someone's not voting for you and they're voting, they're voting for the other guy. Right. So or, it's or that's harder. what people tell me. That's, well, and they yeah. say, like, why can't we have a third party? It's because our system cannot support a, yeah, a legitimate third party. Right. It's a winner sort of, take all. It's hardwired into the right. Constitution. So, so I, I, it is into the Constitution well, I mean, or into the American well, it's mentality? Not, I would say that it's, the, the, I shouldn't say that it's hardwired into the Constitution, but because because of the way that our Constitution works in terms of how laws are passed and, and mm-hmm. things of that nature, um, it's very hard to get away from a two-party model, right? I mean, the, the parties themselves were not, um, you know, the founders were very scared of, of partisanship. Right. Um, certainly there were fierce divisions between them. 
Um, but I think those fears have been validated. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I mean, I mean, George George Washington's famous farewell address. He warns against the dangers of partisanship, but and fa- factionalism, really. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, we require. Well, you've got some single re- member district plurality system where if you win, let's a plurality of the votes. If, let's say 100 percent right. of people vote. If you win 51 percent. The other guy wins 49, 51, you take it all. Right. You're taking all of the representation. Right. In a proportional representation where we see multiple parties and coalitions, uh, usually it's structured where people are voting for a party platform. Yeah. And if you get 37% of the vote, you get 37% of the seats. And there's a list of, of the elected officials under each platform and they apply it to... Uh, yeah. And they apply it to... Um, the representation, but even in those cases, uh, you end up with two major coalitions. Yeah, you know, it, it, I guess it all boils down to a dichotomy, but ours is a little bit more extreme, given that it's a it's a winner take all approach. So I'm probably having a pipe dream if I think that there's going to be a third party that enters the American world, political world in my lifetime, and carries the banner of there's a zillion cent- centrist I mean, ideas. I mean, parties, parties. Uh, Die certainly, you know we haven't yeah. always had the two same the, the wigs, but yeah. right, but but one party, it's not it's not as if a sort of a third necessarily will come in and and elbow its way in between these two. It's that that it one displaced. Well, yeah, one is displaced by another, right? I mean, it's yeah, yeah. as Greg said, the winner take all system. You got to get, you know, you, you got to get, and and in Congress, right? I mean, the the Constitution mandates X number of votes for. Right. certain things and and so yeah you gotta because huh. i always get asked to enter into politics and my wife said she'd divorce me <laughs> i don't blame her yeah yeah and i she's out and then she'll say well what would you do if you did run for politics abstain uh, on every vote but I, the public I, I, vote. I would be an independent mm-hmm. to the highest degree and i it seems like in this very split world closely split. If you were the independent, you could really bargain a lot. Hey, you guys want my vote on that right. bill? Guess what? You need it more than anything? Here's Super what hard I need. to get elected, but yeah, they, they wield a lot of power. Yeah, and, and I hey. mean, the other thing that you see is upstart upstart political parties are often co-opted by one of the larger parties. Tea Party, yeah. Right, just co-opted. Yeah. So, huh. well, I'm trying to figure out how this got on the public, public lands topic. Patrick's over there without headphones looking at us like, dude, yeah, we're, you're, you're getting us out in the weeds, man. Bring it really back in here. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all political. It's really uncomfortable to talk about, but it has to be at a certain point. You know, it, we've it got is. to confront one of the biggest uh, obstacles in the mm-hmm. public lands arena, and it's politics. It is politics. And that's where I, I felt that in my younger life, conservation issues were apolitic, apolitical. Public lands, for the most part, were apolitical. Mm-hmm. I went to college in Reno uh, during the Sagebrush Rebellion. Mm-hmm. I was going to college there. And it was a really interesting time to be observing all this. I'm like, this is like out in the weeds. Dudes, what are you, what are you guys thinking? And, and it kind of went away. But you would go out to these places, and I'd be out there hunting, and you'd talk to some of the locals. And I'm like, you know what? These are about as normal people as I've ever met. They, they aren't these whack jobs like you would hear about on TV or on the news report. And growing up in a logging family, I probably had some biases towards those people who try to make a living from the land. Uh, But I look at then and I look at now and the politicization, if that's a word, 
or politicizing these issues is like no time in my life. I never has one party said, we want to get rid of the public lens. When groups start saying stuff like that, it becomes a political issue. Yeah, it was devastating. And I think, and it doesn't represent the rank and file either. It's the no. platform saying we should divest these. And it's like, what, what are you talking about? You're not even representing, the, you're not representing the best interests of your, of your party members, nor, you know, like, I'm not going to say my own political leanings. I tend mm-hmm. to think of myself, like I said, someone who thinks by the issues, but we all think that. But, right. yeah. um, but so I kind of lost my train of thought there. Well, Where was it going? No, it, I'll, I'll maybe circle put back it, around. Put it, put it back on the tracks, but that'll happen. How, how is. How is a group like Keep It Public with this stated mission of oppose the sale transfer or what is it, impairment of public Degradation. Health? Degradation, okay. You know, like uh, HR right. 622. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's just a, it's, a, it's an attempt to degrade the, the management capacity so low that it will become more justifiable to transfer and sell the land. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so how do you keep that sanitization keep your message that clean in today's world or is that the experiment well it is an experiment the the method that we came up with was that weird term i said earlier a really aggressively isolated stance we don't Mm -hmm. touch anything but the exact sentence i just said we are opposed to the transfer sale or degradation of federal management of public land period and i am standing on the table shouting to the rooftops that i am there with you yeah, and, and I, yeah. I bet you folks driving down the road listening to this podcast are smacking their fist on the dashboard saying, yeah, about time. I don't give a sh- blank about the other stuff. That's static. Mm-hmm. But then you get to the reality where someone says, well, issue A is much higher priority for me than this public land thing or issue D or J or whatever. And then to gain attention there's it seems like there's going to be the temptation to get pulled over to okay a group of these people think issue a is more important if we kind of leaned a little bit that way maybe they'd be more and i mean we're really passionate about this stuff but you know if you look you know if you look at the average american i assume that we're looking at our policy issues and we're doing kind of a bargain between all of them and it's like which party is representing the most of these or you know you're doing a balancing act between things you care about and um so you're specific just to public lands just to public lands not period not water and it's not like yeah air, and we're not, not saying resources no yeah. i mean you'll have your feelings about that but of you're course. not so when someone says hey you guys need to come and weigh in on the clean air act or the epa or the whatever me as greg i have strong personal right. viewpoints about all these issues, but keep of course. Public's but keep the public's going to stiff arm that and say, you know what, as important as that is to you and as to all of us, we're, we're And we've seen it. We can bring lens. together people who are completely culturally divided and politically almost totally unaligned, uh-huh. except for public lands. It is a unifying issue. I agree. And we need to show that. And we can't just let this narrative be told where it's, you know, the right feels this way and the left feels that way. It's nonsense. And we need everybody to stand up and we need to make sure that politicians on both sides of the aisle know that they can't touch our public lands. Is, is that a... Okay. I'm with you. I mean, so, so I'm, I'm a listener and I'm like, Greg, you got me. What do I do? How, how, where do I go? What? 
Tell me, get, I'm fired up, man. You got me. Where, where, how do I? Well, I'll give a, I can give a pitch for Keep It Public. So the way that we operate is through three channels. The first is creating educational content. And, uh, and it's like that, that video. historical video we did. Right. And so we talk about history. We talk about the Constitution. We talk about economics. Um, and there's, you know, this is in addition to the powerful personal stories that are regularly told. And I think actually as, a, as an industry or, a, you know, as a community, we've done a pretty good job of, of saying, you know, I, I really do. Me as Greg, I have personal connections to the Los Padres National Forest or the Trinity Alps or the Southern San Juans in Colorado, Middle Fork Salmon in Idaho. And we've done a good job of showing people that we have personal attachments and it's powerful and we need to keep doing it. I think t- sometimes there's a tendency to rely on that because um, it's sexy, right? You get, to, you get to watch like cool videos of great. people kayaking and all that and it's great. But public lands is one of those unique issues where from almost any vantage point you look at it, we're on the right side. You look at history, it's legitimate. You look at the Constitution, there's the property clause. You look at economics, unequivocal. Right. Federal management is the way to go. And so we're really trying to make... Um, and yeah, so like I said earlier, I didn't want to make too much of an advocacy pitch in that video. I just right. wanted to say, listen, the history speaks for itself. And so we're going to continue to create content like that. Um, in addition, the other channels are uh, just hands-on conservation. You know, if we hear of... Uh, you know, you've got plenty of wilderness areas, right, that, that, that are desperately understaffed. Yeah. And sometimes trailheads get closed because the roads in through the national forest are completely impassable. Right. We'll go out and we'll work on maintaining that road and making sure that that access remains. Hunters, fishers, uh, hikers, whatever, bird watchers, yeah. everyone can go there. And then the last kind of component is direct advocacy. Uh, you know, flying out to D.C., meeting with congressmen, meeting with senators, and... Uh, and, and really trying to share our viewpoint. And we've got the consensus part on our side, you know, Republicans yeah. and Democrats, the rank and file support federal management of public lands. Direct advocacy. So if you, if, you, if you like that approach, I mean, you can go to keepitpublic.org right now and make a donation. That'd be wonderful. We certainly need it. Uh, let, pretty, let me restate that, folks. If you don't go to keepitpublic.org and make a donation, don't tell me that. Love it. Everyone's <laughs> looking at me like, uh oh, what else is he going to say? We've also got sweet merchandise. If you'd prefer getting like a, a hat or a shirt with all that, by all means, that helps as well. And actually, from the merchandise, we're, we're really happy that. Um, so we give 2% each to um, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, yep. uh, Country and Hunters and Anglers, where we are today at the Rendezvous. Fantastic organization. Yep. And then the Outdoor Alliance, which is uh, an organization that represents a tapestry of uh, individual. Uh, individual agencies. You've got uh, IMBA, which is the International Mountain Bike Association. You've got the Winter Wildlands Alliance. You've got climbers. You've got, again, there's that term, non-consumptive users all right. under this umbrella. So we're pretty proud that um, we get to, and this is, for, this is these are donations in perpetuity. That will always be there. We just cut our first checks yesterday and those will always, 2% will always be going to those three organizations. And we really think it's a, uh, it's an opportunity to demonstrate, at least in the recreational scene, that when we meet, when we say coalition, we mean it. Yeah. And I guarantee you, there are people across those organizations that would be at each other's throats right. politically. Yeah, and that that, that I mean, is so remarkable. I think I think the the idea is that federal public lands and federal management of public lands is a big tent, and there are going to be there are going to be some interesting conversations and maybe some heated conversations between the various people that fall under that tent, right? But that right. doesn't mean that uh, 
you tear the tent down or something. Right. I mean, I'm just dragging this metaphor out until it's totally inelegant. But I think, I mean, I mean, we're not denying that, 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 uh, I guess we're not arguing that everybody that believes in federal public lands is going to see eye to eye on every issue, right. but we can agree on something. And then from there, engage in, in other conversations perhaps, right. but... And we don't even get that grandiose. You might never have to talk to these people again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, well. but as long as you agree on public lands and show your support for public lands, that's enough for us. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, divide and conquer is, right, exactly. is age I mean, old, right? But we have to fight being divided on public lands. Right. Yeah. It's an American it's issue. Resist, it's not a political resist issue. Resist the inclination to divide into camps. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, what you just said there is where my hope comes from, from this, because in Montana, when we had this craziness about transfer to the federal lands to the state land board, I looked at that list. People opposing state transfer groups were the Montana Wood Products Association. And over on the other side was some people that have sued the logging industry. <laughs> They both were standing up for public lands and supporting the idea that, you know what, if we keep it public, and we, it, it's kind of like my wife and I have this idea that when we got married, we said divorce is never an option. So here we are 28 years later, and she's had to put up with an awful lot of stuff. But if divorce is not an option, you solve the problem. If Getting rid of these public lands is not an option. Sooner or later, you just have to face up, you know, I got to solve this problem. We're all in this country together. You know, I read so, something interesting recently <laughs> that uh, it, was, it was just an op-ed about how uh, we should be doing like mandatory, I guess it wouldn't be abroad in this case, but study abroad uh, within our high schools. But you would just send some kids, kid from like Massachusetts to Kansas and you take some kid from Nebraska and send him <laughs> to San Francisco <laughs> and just like have them get exposure. Like you were saying during the Sagebrush uh, yeah. Rebellion, right? You're going out there and, uh, and they seem like totally normal people. Yeah. We are totally normal people. Mm -hmm. And the dichotomous political process has this way of making us monsters. Yeah. You know, no, and we just, we got to watch ourselves. You, you know? You're so, I mean, it's such a, a truism. Anyone who has a Facebook page quickly realizes that, you know what, I'm going to punch my brother in the face. Who's this time red I guy that's uh, yelling at everybody? Yeah, like, like, uh, he's a dumbass. What, what, Bob, you know, just because we, we think we're, we're so divided into, I think, Randall, you said tribes. And we identify with a tribe. So that kind of says anyone who isn't in our tribe is, mm -hmm. is not one of the us. The other, yeah. Yeah, they're the others. Well, we can't go. We can't sign on to something. They're, uh, yep. they're signed on to. Um, we see it in the hunting world all the time. Mm -hmm. can't, and, and, it, and here's where the risk is in the hunting world. Some groups will go and sign on say something as, as uh, sterilized as the idea that we're only going to discuss a topic that is opposed the sale, transfer, or degradation of public lands. And so a hunting group goes and signs on to that over on the other side, some group that, mm -hmm. you know, whoever it might be, signs on. And you'll have a bunch of hunters who will attack you and say, well, did you see who else signed that letter? Oh, we just had a board meeting and it's like, you'll get, uh, you'll get a group that wants to become a corporate partner mm -hmm. with, uh, with Keep It Public. They've got to agree basically to our basic stance and then you negotiate the terms of the partnership from there. But we're saying, well, how do we, 
uh, theoretically, right? Let's say there is a cross-country ski manufacturer, right? Right. Let's also say there's a gun company, right? You know, and they both want to be corporate partners, and you're worried about the people are always trying to categorize us as right. that. Well, they, what are they really? Yeah, these are a whole bunch of like <laughs> liberals, or a whole bunch of rednecks. Like, well, who the hell yeah, are what, these people? Are yeah. And um, so, <laughs> it's a really interesting uh, challenge to, to say, well, should we just do it two at a time? <laughs> should we announce our <laughs> partnerships two at a time and always have them? <laughs> you know, just to balance it out all the way down the line. But uh, this stuff permeates every sort of decision we have to make. And there, yeah, there is this tendency. We, we get it all the time. People are really trying to figure us out. There's nothing yeah. to figure it out. You know, we have one stance, but, uh, but absolutely. Like you're saying, can you see who else signed on as a corporate partner to keep it public? Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, it, I it, would never donate to them. It's right. Like, come on. It's so frustrating to see that. I mean, we get it within the hunting world where it's a, well, you signed on with that bunch of crazy backcountry dudes. Do you know that they don't want me to drive my ATV <laughs> up there? I mean, it, it's, it, we see Can't it, drive it, my it, airboat down an irrigation ditch? Yeah, That's crazy. Just, every place these discussions happen, you get attacked by others who want, or you had a term for it, uh, others wanting to associate you with the other guy because it justifies what, what they're saying. It's, it's just it's, like this in-group, out-group uh, yeah. demeanor, right, man? So Yeah, yeah, people are constantly looking for what we really are yeah. all the time. And, and like I said, they'll email and they say, but what are your stances on this? What are your stances on this? They want to know that we agree with them on everything. And right. I might personally, as Greg, right. if you're the right person and you reach out, I might agree with you down right. the line. But the only place where it's going to be relevant is public lands. Yeah. Huh. Well, folks, if you're listening to this, please support these guys. I, I, you guys have heard me say forever that we need to get, get out of this political rut of RD, left, right, conservative, liberal. And some of you send me emails or messages saying, Newberg, you've got hit on the head as a youngster. And we already knew that before you sent the email. So, but I, I hold out great hope, guys, that you are on to something that is going to make public lands such a priority issue, make it so apparent to anybody in the world of policy or politics that it's the sacred ground. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, in literal and figurative terms. It's what we have to do. Yeah. We just have to do it. And it's been heartening to see, you know, I, it really was an experiment and I've, I've studied the worst part of American politics for a lot of years. <laughs> and, uh, but, Watching it happen, watching people who you know can't stand each other or side-eye each other finally accept that, hey, we don't have to like each other or even agree on most of the issues, but we know we agree on this issue and that's enough and let's move forward. And uh, seeing that proof of concept the first few times was really big. Yeah. I wasn't sure whether we could do it, but now I hold out a lot of hope, and a if, lot of hope. And if we can agree on this, maybe there's... One other, or yeah. two other issues oh. out there. That <laughs> Randall, some, you're getting crazy know, now. You know, know. Hey, <laughs> if you're going to dream, dream big. I'm but, hopelessly uh, uh, idealistic, I uh, guess. But. And I, I am too. And I guess <laughs> that's where my passion for the part of where my passion for this comes from, because public lands for me are so much a part of my identity. They're so much a part of my imagination of what I see America as that I just cannot see an America without public lands because of what they've meant to me personally, to my family, to, to my identity as a person, to my communities I've lived in. I just, 
Oh, my yeah. sense of patriotism is strongly tied to our public lands. It's so yeah. uniquely American. It's I, so yeah. I, I just I struggle to think about what America would be without that. And so, if I at times get a little wound up over it, you know what? If you don't like it, change the dial. It's something you should be fired up about. Right. We should make it untouchable. Yeah. I, I mean, I look at what the NRA has done with the gun issue. There's not a politician that doesn't think twice, thrice or more about anything related to guns. And I'm a member of the NRA. Uh, I would love to see us collectively as a country raise the issue of public lands to that same point mm -hmm. where no policy leader in their right mind I think that's where the rubber meets the road. That's what needs to happen. For, for, you know, you give money to keep it public or backcountry hunters and anglers or whomever, where the real progress will actually be made is, uh, is making it political poison to touch it. And regardless of how you feel about guns or the NRA, one of the most polarizing groups out there, they've been tremendously successful right. at making guns pretty much politically untouchable. Right. And we need to do the same with public lands. Yeah, that that people have asked me in in my business plan. Or, uh, I, don't let an accountant write a business plan. It, you'll kill three acres of trees for the paper it takes to write a business plan for an accountant. But I always go back to my why. My why has not changed, and it all revolves around giving a voice to the self-guided public land hunter, creating advocates in the public land community. That has never changed in my 10 years of doing this. And that why is what drives me. It's, it's so easy when that is the why of your mission to not care about RRD or left or right or whatever. So I'm, I'm on board, guys. Man, where do I write my check? <laughs> Keep it public. All right. There Man. you go. Yep. I, I just, I'm, that's why when you, I knew you guys were going to be here, I'm like, I will make time. We're, we're supposed to be at a storytelling thing tonight. And we got to head oh, over there, but I can't tell you how Patrick, much we appreciate it. Are we late? One minute left. We got to be there in a minute? Oh, man. Well, I can't tell oh. you how much we appreciate you having us out here and the kind oh. words have been just great. Guys, I, thanks for all your work and anything my platforms can do to help keep it public. Let me know. And everybody listening, hashtag keep it public. Go to all these places that uh, keepitpublic.org, wherever. Spread the message. We're going to win. We're yeah, winning. We are. We're winning. They're running. They're scared. They just don't know it yet. So. <laughs> but thanks, guys. Appreciate it, folks. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll have another good one for you here pretty soon.